The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Please, if you would, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, completing our study of this great chapter. And the context of this chapter is the advancing kingdom of heaven. From the very beginning and, and through 10 chapters of Matthew's gospel, we've seen this theme emerging, becoming clearer and clearer, that of the advancing kingdom of heaven. And Jesus Christ at the center of it, just as he was the lamb that was slain standing at the center of the throne, so also Jesus Christ... The very Son of God is at the center of Matthew's gospel as the king of the advancing kingdom of heaven. And so when Jesus began to preach in Matthew chapter 4, he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here, now. And what is the nature of that kingdom? It is of a king, Jesus Christ, who is able to look out on a lost and dying world with compassion in his heart. And see that they are harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And and to call his disciples around him and say, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out laborers into his harvest field. And so he begins with prayer, that we who are his disciples, who are already in the kingdom, should pray and ask him, the king of the harvest, the Lord of the harvest, to send out, thrust out laborers into the harvest field. But then we go right on into chapter 10, in which Jesus commissions the apostles, these 12 first representatives, these messengers of the kingdom, to go out on a a little practice mission trip. And they're going to go out and they're going to proclaim that same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And he's going to give them authority and they're going to go out. But in his instructions to them, he's going to unfold instructions that are good for two millennia of the advancement of the kingdom. We're going to see that the advancement is going to meet severe opposition. And the messengers of the kingdom are going to be persecuted. They're going to be opposed. They're going to be hated maliciously. They're going to suffer. And so, as the Lord of the harvest looks out and sees harassed and helpless sheep, his answer is to send other sheep into the midst of wolves who are going to lay down their lives. And be willing to take the gospel so that people might be saved. And so Jesus here in Matthew 10 gives marching orders. Not just to the apostles. Certainly to the apostles. That's the immediate context. But to all believers throughout all history. Of how we must take this gospel message even to the ends of the earth. And so he's giving them marching orders I call it. And at the end here of chapter 10 we're completing these marching orders. And I see in the verses that were read for us this morning three great messages. And it's going to be hard to give to do justice to all three. Each one could stand alone. But the first is the connection between the messengers and how they're received and treated and how the message that they preached is believed. A connection between the treatment of the messengers and the acceptance of the message. That's the first great theme. The second great theme is the emerging, the nascent, the, the seed form of the body of Christ. The fact that there is one body, one mission, one advancement of the kingdom, but not everyone has the same role. There are some that are called to be apostles, and then there are some that are called to just give a cup of cold water to an apostle, and neither one loses their reward. 
And so we see in seed form the beginning of the idea of the complex body of Christ. How not all of us are called to the same function, but all of us are able to be rewarded by faithfulness to that. And the third point is this topic of rewards, of Christian rewards. Jesus mentions it twice in the text that we're looking at today. The rewards given to the righteous, to anyone who receives a righteous man or a prophet, and then even to anyone who gives a cup of cold water. The topic of rewards, and we're going to look at that. How Christ uses rewards as a motivating factor. But through it all, I don't want you to miss the main message. The main message is that we are called to go to a lost and dying world and proclaim this message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. Now, through faith in Christ. Let's look at the first one, and that's in verse 40. It says, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. Here we see that receiving Christ's messengers and believing Christ's message are joined together. The immediate context of these words, I think, are support, way stations of rest for the tired and beaten apostles. Now, if you look over chapter 10, look with me. Jesus sends them out, beginning at at, at verse 5 and then through verse 10. He, He basically sends them out with a clear message and a clear ministry. But he says, don't take along any supplies. Don't take along any bag. Don't take along any extra money. Don't take along anything. Just go. And I'll see to your support. I'll take care of you. So he sends them out. But then very soon as you're reading, you're going to see that they're going to be opposed There are going to be some people that will not receive them or welcome their words. It's going to be difficult for them. They might be rejected, even by their own family members. A man's enemies be the members of his own house, Jesus says in this text. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be troublesome for you. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be beaten, maybe even put to death. So go ahead and go. Off you go. Don't bring along anything. No food, nothing. Just go. How could it be? There must be some way stations of rest. Jesus knows we have bodies. He knows we have psyches. He knows we have morale. Is there no succor given to the advancers of the kingdom of God? Is there no help to be given to them? Of course there is. And so the immediate context is there need to be some people to come alongside the apostles and help them do their ministry. And so anyone who receives you, who takes you in, take it this way, just as hospitality. They didn't have Holiday Inn back then. It didn't exist. And so these apostles went out and they had nowhere to spend the night that night. They could sleep in the, in the town square or in a ditch somewhere. God would not have it so. And so he says, anyone who receives you receives me. He's already dealt with this in verses 11 through 13. Look again at it. He says there, whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. How practical is that? Find somebody worthy of the message and stay there. Live there. That's your your uh, support. They'll feed you. They'll care for you. They'll put a mint on your pillow. Maybe not. But they'll take care of you. They'll welcome you in. Search for words and, and stay at that place until you leave. And as you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. But if not, let your peace return to you. We've already covered that. And so he's he's saying that the context here at the end, he who receives you receives me. Anyone who takes you in, it's like they're taking me in. It's like they're protecting and providing for me. And I think we see here Jesus' recognition of the fact that we have bodies. We need to eat. We get tired. We get weary. 
These are way stations of rest, very much like Pilgrim's Progress. Those of you that studied with us earlier, the, the, that wonderful allegory of the Christian life. There's a rhythm to Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, a rhythm of extreme trial and difficulty and of rest and refreshment. Extreme trial and difficulty and then rest and refreshment again. And in the book, there are way stations of rest along the way. The interpreter's house, Manasin's or Gaius's house. There are places where you can be refreshed, places where you can be renewed. And so he's thinking about that. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. What's the next part? He restores my soul. Do you think the apostles wouldn't need their souls restored after a tough day of preaching in this kind of context? Of course they did. And so they needed a place where they could go at night and be refreshed and restored. In 3 John, verse 5 through 8, it says this. John writes this. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you. You don't even know them. But you're faithful in what you're doing for them. They've told the church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. Verse 8. We ought therefore to show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. What a great verse that is. And it very much fits into what we're talking about here. We're all working together in this mission. And anyone who takes you in, who shows you hospitality, those of you who have gone out for the name, we are working together for the truth. And so we ought to show hospitality. So in a very simple way, that's what he who receives you receives me means. It means to welcome in these messengers, these apostles, to take care of them, to give them what they need to continue. And so we see Jesus Christ providing for his own. He cares for us, doesn't he? He cares for all of our needs. He knows what we need. He created us. He knows that we are weak. We're just flesh. And so he provides for his own. These messengers will go out and stand in his name. They will proclaim his name. And he will not abandon them. But he will care for them. If they are treated well, he will reward those who treat the messengers well. If they are rejected and scorned and persecuted, he will take it very personally. And it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town, he said. And so on the negative side, there's the threat of punishment and curse on the day of judgment. But here, the positive side, 40 through 42, the promise of reward and of blessing for anyone who receives these messengers and takes them in. Jesus says the exact same thing in that great story of the sheep and the goats. Judgment day, when the Son of Man comes, you'll sit on his throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then he will say to those on his right, the sheep, come you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and in prison and you looked after me. That really connects here, doesn't it? He's sending these apostles out and anyone who welcomes them in takes care of them. He takes it very personally. It's like you did it to Jesus himself. Now, why would receiving an apostle in particular be dangerous? Well, it's called guilt by association. These men went out and they turned the world upside down for Christ. They were dangerous people. And they were not well liked in some places. They were, as a matter of fact, hated. And so there's this guilt by association. If you take them in, you're as bad as they are. It's like harboring a fugitive. It's like a crime. And so it took a great deal of courage to take these apostles in and care for them. 
Look at, for example, Jason in Thessalonica. In Acts 17, verse 5 through 9, it says the Jews were jealous of the apostles, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. A riot? A mob? Does that happen when you preach the gospel? Can you imagine? Everywhere you go, there's a riot and a mob. That's a tough life. It really is. And so Jason, it seems, took them in and took care of them, welcomed them. They went to look for Paul and Silas, and they didn't find them. So they went to Jason's house, where they knew they were staying, and dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. Stop there. Okay, you see the guilt by association. It took a great deal of courage, therefore, to accept a messenger of Christ, to bring a messenger into your house and say, Stay with me. I'll feed you. I'll care for you. I'll stand with you in times of trial. But the larger context of this first section is there's a connection between how you receive Christ's messengers and how you believe and accept Christ's message. There's a direct connection between the two. If you treat the messenger well, it's because you're receiving the message well. If you reject the messenger, it's because you're really rejecting the message. And what is the message? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. There is a king, Jesus Christ. He's come to rule the world. He is a good and loving king. He died on the cross that we might have eternal life. He's willing to forgive all of your sins. Through simple faith in Christ, all of your sins can be forgiven. This is the message. If you then begin to beat on the messenger, aren't you really just rejecting the message? Isn't that what's going on? And so there is a connection between how you receive the messenger and how you believe the message. Look at verse 14, Matthew 10. It says, if anyone will not... Look what it says. Look carefully at verse 14. If anyone will not welcome you or, what, listen to your words. Do you see that? It's a matter of welcoming the individual because you're listening to the words, to the message. There is a direct connection, therefore, between you, the apostles, and your words, the message of the kingdom. Do you see it? In verse 14. Jesus put it this way when he was uh, going through in his ministry. He comes to a place where there's a man named Zacchaeus. You remember Zacchaeus? And Zacchaeus is up in the tree because he's a little guy. We have a child's version of it, and he looks like he's about 18 inches tall. I think he was taller than that. But he was just short of stature, and he couldn't see. And so he goes up on a tree. Why? Because he wants to see Jesus. He's heard all about his ministry. He's heard all about his message. He wants to know Jesus. He's a tax collector. He's hated and rejected. Jesus stops and looks up at the tree and says, Zacchaeus, come down because I'm going to stay at your house. Now, I wouldn't say necessarily that Zacchaeus extended hospitality to him. Jesus kind of demanded it. But Zacchaeus was elated. He was thrilled. And he took Jesus in his house and he repented from all of his sins and was so thrilled. And there's a connection between the hospitality that Zacchaeus extended and the welcoming of the message that Jesus brought. And what did Jesus say? Today, salvation has come to this house. Connection between the hospitality and a believing of the message. It's the very thing we've been studying together, many of us, in Sunday school with the book of Galatians. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 4.14 speaks of how they received him and welcomed him in. He says in Galatians 4.14, Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, listen, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Do you see that? Because I was here proclaiming the gospel of Christ, you welcomed me as if I were Jesus himself. That's it. He who receives you receives me, said Jesus. And he who receives me receives the one who sent me. 
a very, very strong connection between a reception of the messenger and an acceptance of the message. We see the same thing lived out in the life of the Philippian jailer. You remember that Paul and Silas were arrested and thrown in jail. The Philippian jailer commanded to keep them in there. Paul and Silas beaten for the crime of preaching the gospel in a dark, ugly, dank prison. Philippian jailer in bed with his family. And Paul and Silas singing hymns. One of those great moments of church history. Singing hymns when suddenly the power of God shook that jail. And all their chains fell off. That's a miracle, by the way. Earthquakes don't make chains fall off prisoners. Earthquakes kill prisoners. All right? But the chains fell off. The doors opened. In effect, God said, you're free. But don't leave. Because you've got some salvation work to do. Philippian jailer calls for lights, runs in trembling, brings them out and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And that very night, the Philippian jailer and his whole family believed in the message and they were baptized. And then what did they do? Paul and Silas, they washed their wounds, set a good meal in front of them, showed them hospitality. There it is. A connection between the acceptance of the gospel message and a washing of the wounds and a, and a setting of a good meal and maybe a warm blanket and whatever they needed to get through their difficult time. Do you see it? A connection between an acceptance of the message and how they treated the messengers. Their wounds were festering and, and, and dirty and they were starving before, but he did nothing about it. Why? Because he didn't believe the message. Now he's believed the message and suddenly he reaches out with hospitality. We also see finally the matter of apostolic authority. Do you see the chain of command? He who receives you receives me because I sent you. And he who receives me receives the Father who sent me. You see that? And so these apostles go out with apostolic authority. If you reject their message, you're really rejecting Christ. And so Jesus has given to the apostles the message of reconciliation. And we who came after, we're not apostles, but we proclaim the apostles' message, don't we? We read it in the New Testament. And we proclaim with apostolic authority. So anyone says, I never really cared much for Paul. I don't really like Peter that much or John. Realize what you're saying. Because Jesus is saying, he who receives you, receives me. Conversely, he who rejects you is really rejecting me. It's apostolic authority and a chain of command. The day that Jesus was raised from the dead, he reiterated this very same point in John chapter 20. He shows them his hands inside, the evidence of his physical resurrection from the dead. And he's going to give them a commission. He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says this, as the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. You see the connection, a chain of command, and so the apostolic authority. Therefore, to resist the apostles was to resist Christ himself. This is the very reason why the apostle Paul makes so much of his authority. Not because he's on an authority kick, but because he wants the Galatians, for example, to believe his gospel message and accept the gospel message, not as the words of man, but as it actually is, the word of God at work among we who believe. And so Paul makes much of his authority for that reason. That's the first point. Receiving Christ's messengers, believing Christ's message. What's the second point? Well, the nascent seed form version of the body of Christ. The main idea here is that there's a direct connection between Christ as the head and his messengers as his body. And there is also an interconnection between each Christian and their role in the advancing kingdom of God. We all are part of the same body. We are all on the same mission. We have the same ultimate goal. And we will be rewarded, not concerning whether we had a big or small role in it, but were we faithful to the role that God gave us to do? 
God may not call you to be an apostle. He may instead put a cup of cold water in your hand and see what you do with it. And so we have in seed form, I think, the idea of the body of Christ. Why do I say only seed form? Because Paul is the one who really develops this for us in Romans and in 1 Corinthians and in Ephesians. But Jesus is the head and we are the body. It says in Ephesians 1, God placed all things under his feet, speaking of Christ, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Christ is the head, we are the body. So also, we who are part of the body, it says in Romans 12, are members of it. It says, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts According to the grace given us, if a man's gift is prophesying, let him prophesy. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. You see the the doctrine of the body of Christ. We do not all have the same function. And so not all of us are going to be apostles going out. And proclaiming boldly the the message of the gospel in the way that an apostle would. But according to this teaching, if you receive a prophet because he is a prophet, you will receive a prophet's reward. You receive a righteous man because he is a righteous man, you will receive a righteous man's reward. And if you any of you gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, I think that's referring to the apostles, because he is my disciple, you will certainly not lose your reward. And so the basic idea is this. If you assist an apostle, according to God, it's the same as preaching as an apostle in terms of eternal rewards. Isn't that freeing? Isn't that wonderful? Because we're not all called to do the same thing, but we can all take part in each other's ministries. You can take part in the ministry of a prophet if you help them do that prophetic ministry. You can take part in the ministry of a righteous man if you assist them in their righteous ministry. You can do all of this because you're part of the body of Christ. God's ways are not our ways. And he looks instead to faithfulness to what he's given you to do. Therefore, let no one despise any support ministry in this church. Let no one, let no one elevate any other ministry to this high place as though it's the key thing in the church. There are no one key thing in the church. The key thing is to do what God has called you to do. If he has given you a cup of cold water and you throw it to the ground to go be an apostle, you've sinned against God. That's not what he's called you to do. Give the cup of cold water. If, on the other hand, you're called to be an apostle and you instead trade it so that you can give out cups of cold water, you're not following God's pattern. It is God who has arranged the body and all the rewards are given according to faithfulness to what he's called you to do. The third point is this concept of rewards. Look what it says again, verse 41. Anyone who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive what? A prophet's reward. Anyone who receives a righteous man, because he is a righteous man, will receive a righteous man's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. The main idea here is that Jesus Christ motivates us by rewards. Many Christians feel uncomfortable with that. And rightly so in one sense. We recognize, as we sang earlier in that beautiful song, we can't boast about anything. The the cross of Jesus Christ alone saves us from sin. The blood that Jesus shed on the cross is the only remedy for sin. And we know enough Christian doctrine to know that we cannot possibly be saved by our good deeds and our good works. 
And so we tend to shy away from this idea of rewards. How could it be? Just the very verse that Frank read for us, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one could boast. But beautifully read verse 10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Why? To do good works, which he laid out in advance that we should walk in them. He intends the good works. He just doesn't want you to be confused about them. Don't be confused about the good works. They're never to be used to pay for sin. Let me ask a simple musical question. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. How many good works could wash away my sin? None. It can't be. Does that mean that God doesn't want me to do good works? May it never be. Of course he wants to do good works. And he is motivating... Not those that are enslaved to sin here. He's motivating his children to behave like children and to do good works to please their heavenly father. Not to pay for sin, but that they should walk in the good works that he's planned ahead of time. Does Jesus motivate by reward? Oh, you better believe he does. All over the place. He wants you to live for rewards. If you understand them properly, you'll see why it's not idolatrous. He motivates you in terms of reward. Now, first, we have to understand the cup of cold water properly. Have you heard this verse before? The cup of cold water verse? I hear it all over the place. Anyone who is interested in Christian benevolence has heard about this verse. It's actually a very famous verse. It's usually used in this way, that Christians should give benevolence, material things, to those that are lost and suffering and poverty-stricken so that we can show the love of Christ to them. Is that a true teaching? Absolutely. Religion that our God and Father accepts is pure and faultless as this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. Of course he cares about the poor. Of course he cares about the needy. But this verse is not teaching that. This is an in-house matter. This is us helping each other to do the ministries that God's given. I think it just comes from not understanding who the he is because he is my disciple. It's not the giver of the water. It's the receiver of the water that's the disciple. And that's the key. If you understand that we're giving the cup because that person is a prophet, we'll gain a prophet's reward. We're giving the cup of water because that person is a, is a righteous man, we'll gain the righteous man's reward. And if we give the cup of cold water because that person is the disciple, we will never lose our reward. Do you see how the logic works? So this is an in-house matter in which God is motivating the church to do its business through rewards. He wants to motivate us to care for each other and take part in each other's ministries, you see, and does that by saying we'll never lose our reward. Now, what are these rewards? Could it be that we're actually to be thinking about rewards? Is this kind of a mercenary? Are we going to get paid? How much for a cup of cold water? 20 bucks. Give me the 20, I'll do the cup of cold water. Is that what's going on here? Is it very mercenary? Not at all. We have to understand it properly. First of all, that Christ rewards uh, or motivates by reward cannot be denied. Put your finger here in Matthew 10 and go back to Matthew 6. In Matthew 6, Jesus makes it very plain how much he cares about your rewards. He says in verse 1, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, what? You will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Stop there. What is Jesus concerned about on your behalf? He doesn't want you to what? 
to lose your reward. He's concerned that you're going to be like the Pharisees and do it for trumpeting out your righteousness. And he said, if you do that, you won't get a reward. And I'm worried about that. I'm concerned about that. And so don't do it, because if you do, you'll have no reward. He does the same thing on prayer or on giving in verse 3 and 4. He says, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret, he will reward you. Again, the concept of reward. Verse 6, he speaks of prayer. When you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret, he will reward you. He does the same thing in fasting in verse 17 and 18. And then he sums it all up in verse 19 through 21. Look at verse 19 through 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Stop there. What does that mean, store up treasure in heaven? How do you do that? How do you go about doing that? Well, we already know it doesn't mean store up justification, store up forgiveness of sins. We know that. It means store up good works done by faith and by the power of the the Spirit. Store them up and not just a few. Give lots of cups of cold water, millions of them. Be busy doing these kinds of things. Store up lots of treasure in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Does Jesus motivate by rewards? Yes, he does. Well, what is this reward? Well, I think, as I've studied scripture, I zero in on a couple of key verses to help me understand. Don't turn there, but write them down. Genesis 15, 1, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Genesis 15, 1, God appears to Abram and says, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. Well, let's take the middle clause out. He says, in effect, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your reward. I'm your reward. I'm what you get. Okay? Well, how does that connect to going into the room, closing the door, and praying to your father's unseen, or not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing, or any of these meticulous, smaller, cup of cold water, good works? How then? 1 Corinthians 4, 5. This is what Paul says. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness, those secret things, and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his, listen, praise from God. That's the reward. Praise from God. Is that not worth living for? To have God say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And not just once, but over many, many good works. I saw that cup of cold water. Well done, good and faithful servant. I saw that you received the righteous man in your house. Well done, good and faithful servant. Again and again. How many times is that is enough on that? I just want ten times for God to say, well done, good and faithful servant. I want ten billion. I want him to be pleased with me. I want to live every moment to the pleasure of God. And if I please him, he's going to include me in that pleasure on judgment day. And I'll be pleased too. That's the reward. So let's store up lots of them. Let's have lots of cups of cold water. Let's have God pleased with us lots. And let's see the kingdom of heaven advance. Now I have a whole bunch of stuff in here on the theology of rewards. And I don't have time right now. But I'll say this very simply. The reward must be done for the motive of the glory of God. By faith. It must be done in a loving manner. Can you imagine being an apostle? Go out. 
Tough day, tough day preaching. People rejecting, people screaming, people stoning you, people upset. And then you come home and your host says, sit down over there. I've got food for you, but I want you to realize just how much it cost. And here's a cup of cold water, but you realize in Palestine how hard it is to get it cold? So here, drink it. You want to go crawl into a ditch somewhere. God doesn't reward that. How do I know God doesn't reward that? It says, if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I sell all I possess and give to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, it profits me nothing. What does that mean, it profits me nothing? No reward. If you do it in a surly, unloving manner. And so by faith, in a loving manner, for the advancement of the kingdom, these things will be rewarded. Ultimately, he rewards what you have opportunity to do. So then, as you have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially those who belong to the family of believers. What application can we build for this? Well, I would say simply this. First of all, realize that God delights in small things. You realize what Christ has done here for us? What has he done? He's taken a worldwide great commission which could threaten to crush us with discouragement and breaks it up into a series of cup of cold waters given. Bite-sized pieces. Every meal, we sit down with our 16-month-old, 17-month-old now, keeps growing. He's getting molars now. I'm excited about the molars. And you know why? Because I don't have to cut the pieces of meat in as small pieces, right? You have to just about puree some of these things. Just cut them up, cut them up, tiny little things. And why? Because he can't handle the whole thing as it is. Can you? Can you handle, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded? Can you handle that? I like the cup of cold water psychology. What it does, it takes that huge thing and breaks it into small bite-sized pieces that I can handle. Every day, a cup of cold water given in his name, he's going to honor it. The kingdom of heaven will advance today. That's brilliant. And so we don't despise small things. Do what you find in your hand to do today. Pray the prayer. Give the money. Encourage the servant of God. Give the cup of cold water. Serve God and you will never lose your reward. Be faithful in the things he's called you to do. God has called us to go. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. Go boldly and preach. He will bring children of God alongside you to help you. He will. Proclaim it boldly and do it expectantly. God will never forget any of the things you've done to build his kingdom. I want to give a quick word now to any of you who have never trusted in Christ. We've been talking about a kingdom of heaven. We've been talking about Jesus Christ. What it means is that Jesus is the Lord, the center of the kingdom. He died on the cross to give eternal life to any who will trust in him. Can I urge you not to walk out the door today without having given your life to Christ? Come into the kingdom of heaven. Trust in him. Believe in him and he'll give you eternal life. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching 
for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.